0: Now, with COVID, we have, we have pulled 10 years forward, maybe more, I don't know, like it's like we are now living in that future right. that I think we all saw. And I think that's going to be a huge benefit to any legal tech entrepreneur that might have been early in their thinking of the market timing.
1: I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Next up on our lineup of legal tech leaders for this week is Andy Wilson, CEO and co-founder of Logical, an instant e-discovery solution that provides a powerfully simple, legal software for processing, reviewing, and producing data. Andy, it's great to have you here.
0: Hey, thanks, to be, thanks. happy to be here, Jack. Uh,
1: so Andy, let's start off, uh, I'm curious, what's most on your mind right now?
0: Uh, when is this 100 degree weather gonna go away in Southern <laughs> California, uh, to be perfectly honest? Um, well, I think as it relates to business, you know, some things that are on my mind are, the impact of COVID on the court system, you know, cause we have a significant percentage of our customers are law firms. And then, you know, a significant percentage of them are in the SMB market, you know, small sub 10 attorney law firms. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about that, talking to customers, you know, trying to understand like what they're going through, seeing if we can help on the product side. Um, and then my team, you know, what are they doing? What can we do to cope? Like we just, uh, we just rolled out a, uh, uh, kind of a summer test program where we're doing half day Fridays because um, what we found is most people are actually working more now that they're all you know 100% remote. Um, so um, you know team and customers those are the two big things.
1: And one of the themes we've been exploring in the legal tech leaders theme this week Andy is, is just talking about how legal technology companies have pivoted to adapt to COVID-19 and if there's some, some lessons from those transitions that, that law firms might, uh, might be able to learn from. And we found, of course, many technology companies have already pre-COVID-19 developed some amount of muscle around distributed work and uh, work from home in some cases. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about how Logical has uh, adapted to the the crisis, and, and maybe what what rhythms and tools and behaviors you you were able to uh, lean on that existed pre COVID nineteen, and w- maybe what what new muscles you've needed to develop since the the crisis really struck.
0: Yeah, well, there's I think there's a lot to unpack there because um, it feels like we've done. A year of work in like two months, you know. It, it, it does feel
1: that way, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah, and we're living in twenty thirty. It's not twenty twenty anymore. I'm just, on my checks. I'm writing twenty thirty. Unfortunately, <laughs> this won't be able to be cash. But uh, um, yeah, everything has just been accelerated. So you know, looking at it from like the lens of the, of the customer, you know, what have we done to uh, help our customers? You know, one of our, our core values is put the customer first. So we, we, we we take, typically take that as like, okay, where do we start? Um, and you know, and mainly in the law firm market, we have corporate and government customers too, but sort of think about like, what does this mean? You know, for lawyers that are doing litigation and document review, what does this mean? You know, when they're working from home, what, what kind of tools are they gonna need? What kind of features are they gonna need? Um, what kind of like business model needs to be worked on? And, and where we came out from this was, now more than ever, this shift it's in our market specifically like e-discovery the shift from centralized e-discovery which is the way it's always been you know you kind of call the internal it department or your third party vendor and they manage this very complex task of e-discovery for you but covid has made it painfully obvious that that model is broken and that's the old model and it has to be completely distributed and decentralized now um which has some pretty uh significant I think impacts on the on the legal system because most of the the market there is At least from our observation is they're they're not they don't pride themselves on their technical aptitude Right. Um, It's a little concerned about that. So we launched a uh, we accelerated a um, a Certification program recently. So we we created a color certification program. That's free um, and it combines the knowledge of e-discovery and the usage of the product, so you can kind of video game, you know, um, gamify it a little bit. Um, that way, people can kind of ease into it. You know, they get to like level one and they get going with that. So that's, right. that's one. Of the and things you can on the kind project. of
1: progressively develop skills through that through yes. that process. Yeah, cool.
0: That's been a big. That's a been, been a big change.
1: And is that in the vein of helping customers accelerate their adoption cycle? Are you seeing, uh, almost like a An urgent purchase cycle coming from from customers, given the new environment that they're they're trying to navigate with COVID nineteen.
0: Yes, so the um, uh, that's something we pay fairly close attention to the the cycle time to uh, sign up to closed one. It's about ten days now, um, which is you know pretty good. Like we're we're in a um, and it's down from like seventeen days, you know, somewhere around there from the beginning of the year so we've seen a um a pretty big um, acceleration there, which makes sense you know now that you can't really call i t um, you've got to do it yourself and you have an urgent need uh, you've got the data from your client or the client has the data, and they need to get going, so they just sign up and get going
1: so you're um, you're helping your customers navigate uh, and you're helping onboard new customers in innovative ways. Can you talk a little bit about how logical responded to the, the crisis from, from a workforce standpoint? Did you, uh, at what point did you send everyone home and what kind of changes have you, uh, have you found in the day to day in terms of how you're operating?
0: Yeah, well um, we are in a a better position than probably most companies because about almost 70% of the, the company was already remote, you know, um, all over the United States, Canada, the uh, UK. Um, so we had a lot of the rituals, you know, and rhythms set up so that we could foster a hybrid culture of San Francisco headquarters and, uh, you know, all over. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't that much of a stretch, you know, for us, um, to, to move to you know a fully remote uh, environment, and I on March fifth, we told everybody in San Francisco, you can't go to the office, so we shut it down. You know every, the the Bay Area was pretty early to this with Facebook yeah. and yeah, so we we stopped on March fifth, um, and since then we've said, Hey, listen, we are not going back this year. And there's a pretty good chance that uh, we won't have an office next year. I mean, I, I've been listening to. Um, you know podcasts and reading articles about what the future of office work is going to look like and it just sounds like a terrible airport tsa experience <laughs> right right <laughs> i don't want to put my employees through that i want to give them yeah the you get
1: a temperature check before you come in the office and <laughs> yeah yeah drop and cough and it's
0: like no 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 this is terrible no this is horrible horrible employee experience for now because the infrastructure just isn't there to do all this stuff non-invasively right um i think as as this kind of infrastructure evolves where it's more non-invasive you know more of it's you know digital you have kind of a digital health card and there's um uh you know silent screening that kind of stuff and and obviously a vaccine is going to help with this tremendously um i'm i'm reluctant to to go back to that old model
1: so you mentioned you had uh, many of those muscles built around working with a distributed team, and so on. Um, for our, our our listeners that maybe don't have the benefit of having operated in a distributed way in the past, do you have any uh, advice or or tips in terms of what running a distributed team looks like when you're when you're doing it successfully, and maybe some what some of your if you've accumulated any scar tissue and, and hard earned lessons, what, uh, what not to do?
0: <laughs> yeah. So, um, I would say the, the biggest thing, the biggest change is you go, you have to go to a writing first culture that's yeah. mostly asynchronous. Um, and so what does that mean? That doesn't mean like everybody's slacking each other all the time. Cause that's a, an, a, a synchronous you kind know, of obnoxious part of you know working from home if you don't know what you're doing because you really distract people and become less productive um so write first and, and do it in an asynchronous way one of the things that we've done as an operating mech we've been doing it for years um because we've always had a hybrid approach here is weekly newsletters by team or like important projects so think of it like old school listserv right like remember the whole yahoo Listserv that you could sign up yeah. for yeah yeah um, so the way it works, we operate on an OKR model here for uh, planning, quarterly and annual planning. And each team has you know their subset of OKRs. Um, so every week on Friday, uh, the leaders of those teams, so call it marketing, finance, et cetera, they send out uh, an email to this, their listserv. So like news-marketing-at-logical.com. Right? That's an internal Google group um, which acts as a listserv. And they email that. And anybody who subscribes to that, which anybody can, you can subscribe to anybody's newsletters, will get that email. And it gives you a rundown of how they're doing on their goals, you know, how they're tracking. It gives you the highlights of the week, the lowlights of the week, the learnings from the week, um, lots of shout-outs, you know, those kinds of things. That is super helpful uh, because everybody can subscribe to anybody's feed and be informed when they want to be informed. Um, that's my biggest hack of all. And in terms of like what doesn't
1: work, um, and Andy, sorry, just on, on that point, is that both at the team level and the individual level or just at the team level?
0: So the, the individual level, we try and, you know, we, we practice kind of the Daniel Pink map framework, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And we want to, you know, if you're doing individual contributor work, I don't want to put like manager work on, on those folks. Um, you're reporting up. That said, some people do have to report out, right? And so we have this big, you know, OKR spreadsheet um, where all the all the OKRs of the company are, are visible to everybody in the org, and it's organized by by month and on the columns and then the rows of the various, you know, key results and objectives. And so if you're the driver of any one of these key results, you are obligated every week on Friday to go in and leave a comment about how you're progressing and then change the color of the KR. So that way, anybody in the org, including the managers who have to kind of summarize it and then report out can just go in, collect it when they, when they want to. Um, so there's a level of, of, you know, individual reporting that way, but it's not too cumbersome.
1: And really briefly, Andy, uh, you mentioned OKR. Is there uh, a framework for tracking goals? Can you, can you, yeah. Give us just a quick download on what OKRs are and how they're useful.
0: Yeah, um, so so OKRs. I don't give the whole history on it, but this is this is one of the secrets to Google's success. Um, that uh, one of their found one of their investors, John Doerr, I believe, um, yeah. early investor. Yeah, um, he's actually recently wrote a book on OKRs, which is okay. I would I wouldn't use that as a bible, by the way. There's a there's another guy out there. Uh, that's done a fantastic job, um, Felipe Castro. Felipe Castro has written a really great book on the beginner's guide to OKRs. So OKR stands for objective and key result. So for instance, let's say, you know, you wanted to get more customers, like that's the objective. Like, okay, let's, let's uh, you know, get more customers of this type, right? Well, okay, well, how are you going to achieve that? Um, you know, what's the actual metric that you're going to move? And that might be something like, well, increase the, you know, conversions on this landing page from X to Y. Well, that would be a key result, right? So you start with a baseline, hopefully you have like a baseline number, a metric that you're trying to improve. And then you, you guess at like what this could be. So like, okay, want to go from X percentage to Y percentage, um, that's a good key result. You know, Marissa Mayer has a good quote that if it doesn't have a number, it's not an OKR, you know, something right. like that. Um, and that's the common mistake I see people make with okrs is that they do they basically pull up initiatives like launch podcast by you know such and such date. that's that's kind of a project level. It's a little the click below. you know you're gonna have a ton of initiatives, but it's not super valuable from like a tracking perspective.
1: And the concept of key results that ladder into those objectives uh, are quantifiable. That's the measurable part and and yeah. that's Really, I, th- I think at the heart of OKRs, you've got a almost a visionary objective, and then some really quantifiable and objectively measurable key results.
0: Exactly, and it works. When it works, it works beautifully because it's all bottoms up driven for the most part on the shit that matters. Right? I don't know if you can curse on this podcast,
1: <laughs> you guys. Yeah, can edit yeah, that yeah we're, we're, we're rated E. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent.
1: All right. Well, that's gonna
0: fly. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, what we've seen is when you, when you have a really good, clear objective, which is kind of like a mission, you know, mission or vision, um, and uh, everybody understands it, then you can say, hey, guys, what can you do to help us get there? And then they come up with all these ideas and projects, and then you approve them, and then boom, there's more autonomy, there's more, or, more ownership, and shit just gets done uh, faster and at a better quality than us just saying, like, do these things you know
1: yeah we use OKRs at Clio as well and and likewise have found them to be really powerful uh but they're they're actually really hard to get right uh it, it, and it's it's actually a, a lot of I would say organizational change and change management in seeing OKRs adopted successfully and then doing yeah. OKRs properly and I, I think this is actually a constructive struggle because you're kind of front-loading the work rather than figuring out you didn't have the clarity you needed, you know, way too late, but doing OKRs really well and, and putting the effort into getting those OKRs right uh, can be really, I think, clarifying and something that a, a lot of law firms could could benefit from. So those are some great tips. We talked about OKRs. We talked about using, uh, developing a, a writing culture and uh, and the idea of, of asynchronous communication, which is... Uh, all I think, you know, really foundational, almost foundational to successful remote works, some kind of goal tracking system, everyone knows what you're focused on, some kind of system of aligning your resources and laddering up to a bigger overall goal. Um, And then communication tools, making sure everyone knows what's going on. And, and I think importantly, that doesn't need to be done in a a stand-up synchronous meeting that uh, we're all so used to. And that's maybe the most uncomfortable thing for, for law firms, I think is moving away from so much of what used to be in-person communication. If you can't I'm curious, see them
0: working, how do you know they're doing anything?
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, you know, looking from, from your perspective uh, you've been in the legal industry for a long time, you've, you've been working on Logical since 2004, which actually predates, I feel like uh, an old hat at this, and I've been at it since 2008, so you've got four years on, <laughs> on me and, and building Logical. I lost my hair way <laughs> before you, Jack. <laughs> yeah, you, you lost your hair before <laughs> me, you, you've been you've been around the block, Andy, so, I, and your Twitter bio, by the way, uh, I, I love it, it reads, disrupting the legal industry. So, yeah. tell, tell me a little bit about just your perspective on maybe the opportunity that COVID-19 is presenting the legal industry. It's obviously presenting a bunch of challenges, but also uh, I think some, some unique opportunities. And, and maybe talk about what kind of disruption and transformation you've maybe expected to see over your 16 years in, in legal, what's happened, what hasn't, and, and what your hope is for, for what we might see over the coming months, maybe year plus, as the, the COVID-19 situation plays out.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, great question. Um, man, we could talk a long time about that one. Uh, well, I think Jack, you'd probably agree with this. Like as entrepreneurs, our job is to kind of see what the future might be. Right. And you know, maybe clearer yep. than others. And then just to bring that, bring that closer to, to the present, um, yep. and try and get some crazy people to follow along with you on this, this vision of the future. That's right. So you know, and you know I was um I think a lot about the future, and i think I think in the past that has that has kind of hurt me in terms of like trying to time the market, where what I want to be is just not so, you know like the the market's not ready for that right,
1: and timing is uh, everything
0: timing is freaking everything um timing and I'd say your business model fit to your customers, probably the second most important thing. Um, be, as an example, you know, we launched Logical in 2013. It's actually when we met um, at the ABA Tech Show.
1: I remember that. Yeah, I had a broken arm. I was wearing
0: a big <laughs> cast.
1: Yeah, you were practically in traction. You, were, you had a really serious uh, snowboarding accident.
0: Yes, I did. Oh gosh, I got the hardware to prove it. Um, so you know the company's history does go back to 2004 but we weren't a we weren't a software software as a service company then we were a uh, kind of like a high-end tech consultancy you know for big stake litigation with very large clients like large US banks and huge law firms government agencies a lot of money involved um, and the reason why we built logical was to you know, we saw like, hey, in the future, this is where we, we got wrong. Like, in the future, this just doesn't make any sense. There's no way that someone's gonna pay me a million dollars to do what a computer's gonna do. Like right. that's just, this doesn't make any sense. You know, computers get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and humans get more and more expensive on the tech scale at least. Um so uh, we we kind of looked into the future and said, All right, well, we think the vast majority of discovery You know, the looking through emails and Slack messages, et cetera, is going to be um, digital and it's going to be done online and it's going to be self service and it's going to be way cheaper than what it is today. So we're like, well, let's build that. And we set off to do that during the last recession, um, launched it in 2013 at the ABA Tech Show. And, uh, you know, people thought we were absolutely insane because the, the e discovery market was something that you pay people millions of dollars to, right? It's a high end service. How dare you bring this in-house because you apparently you're gonna increase the risk. And no way would I upload my client sensitive data to the cloud. That sounds like crazy, crazy Right. Me. Um, so it took it took about four years before the market to really start to go, yes, you know, that's cloud's the right way to go, but it was still kind of, you know, slow going. Now with COVID, we have we have pulled. Ten years forward, maybe more. I don't know. Like it's like we are now living in that future (laughs) that I think we all saw, and I think that's going to be a huge benefit to any legal tech entrepreneur that might have been early in their thinking of the market timing. They just they just got a big jump, you know. If they can have the cash to survive, but I think they just got a big jump to yeah.
1: The future is arriving early completely yeah. agree with you
0: yeah yeah so you know and we're seeing that i'm sure you guys are seeing that it's like we had it as an example like pigs are flying right now like there is a uh, thousand person uh texas based mid-market bank
1: Right? thanks yep.
0: <clears throat> how many banking customers do you have at Can
1: you, you uh, count them on I one hand <laughs> i don't know if we have any banks to be honest
0: there you None. go yeah <laughs> Uh, Well, we've talked to all the big guys because we used to work with them on, you know, highly sensitive large matters. And uh, they've always told us to go pound sand, Um, you know, because they don't they're not fans of the cloud. Well, now they're starting to knock on the door like, hey, you know what? This this seems like a good idea. So We just signed up this, you know, thousand person company in Texas um, because they're all distributed. They're all remote and they need to get their work done. So if that trend continues, um, man, it could be a, a very interesting next couple of years for legal tech companies.
1: So it sounds like on some fronts you're seeing uh, accelerated adoption. Uh, we're, we're seeing uh, the industry jump ahead by a decade or more uh, in terms of its adoption of technology. And, and I would certainly agree with, with that at a, a high level. I'm 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 curious. On the other side, are there opportunities that you see that law firms are not fully embracing the way that perhaps they they could or should to uh, best set themselves up for uh, success and and for successfully exiting this this pandemic and hopefully position stronger than when they entered it.
0: Yeah. Um, well. Looking at it from like the client's perspective, you know, we have about 40% of our customer base is non-law firm. So we get to hear, you know, from them, what they want out of their law firms. They want a modern approach to doing business, plain and simple. Right. Yep. And so that, you know, the cloud services kind of check the box on so many of those things, <laughs> you know, um, cost-effective, fast, a modern user experience, you know, et cetera. And I think for, for lawyers um, at law firms, I think there's a pretty big opportunity to cut out middlemen where they exist in the old world and to try and capture some of that um, that kind of lost billable time. Um, I'll give you an example, like on the discovery side, you know, but this, this is true for anything. I mean, law firms are, they act as like a general contractor for these matters, right? They have to kind of pull in all the different pieces right. of the, uh, the puzzle to, to complete the job for their clients. Cause very few law firms are full service, like the big ass, you know, AM law 100, most of them need to pull in third parties. And so a lot of these third parties are, are available as self-service tools, um, where they can kind of cut out the middleman and then better service their client and, and capture more of the billable time that's been lost in the, uh, uh, the kind of the third party market. So I'll give you just the most recent example we saw in a uh, court filing. Uh, one of our customers, it's a three attorney firm based in Kentucky. Uh, they, had, they captured no joke, $60,000 in, in time that they build for because they did their own e-discovery historically that would have been outsourced to an e-discovery provider and they would have built for that time and that that would have been eaten by the client but that was able they were able to bring that in-house uh, because of that and i'm sure there's countless other opportunities just like that
1: interesting and in, in that case, they're probably able to deliver the service to the client for less cost, but also make more money themselves. So it's kind of a classic example of, you know, being able to cut out the middleman and actually create a win-win for the client and the, the law firm.
0: Yes. And that, that's what I think this is just accelerating all that, like all these old school and the legal industry is rife with this stuff. You know, these kind of like antiquated ways of getting legal work done, um, there's so many other tools available now where maybe you can't get hundred percent of it done. You know, there's always going to be the bespoke matter that, right. that requires an, a level of expertise that software just can't provide. But I think the majority of it, you can probably just use some service. And to your point, like it's cheaper and you will probably build more time and you're reporting, you know, the legal trends report. I can't remember what it was in terms of realization rate, but I want to say less than two hours a day
1: yeah 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 between is about two and a half hours a day top line from a utilization rate standpoint and then when you ladder down through realization rate at around 85% and collection rate at around 80% you end up basically with two hours of collected revenue per day per lawyer so
0: yeah you
1: know I I think you, you boost that number by reevaluating how you're spending your time and making sure that you're doing the most impactful work possible. Yeah. Um, Andy, there's one thread I wanted to pull out a little bit. Uh, you mentioned the Legal Trends Report. One of the themes we explore quite a bit is uh, this disparity between what lawyers expect their clients, what they expect their clients want and what clients actually want. And, and there's this, this chasm between the two and, and you talked about the fact that at Logical, you've got this unique position of, of catering to both uh, law firms as well as their, their clients in some cases. What stand out to you as, as maybe what some of those big disconnects might be? If you could pass on to the law firms that are servicing uh, some of the clients that, that you've got on the Logical side, what do you hear as recurring themes that, that law firms could clue into if they wanted to get uh, an edge in the marketplace?
0: Uh, Well, there's so much different, like the the, the types of legal work are so varied. Um, I I will talk to what I know, like my domain. I've been in, I've been in the world of like discovering litigation since 2001. Um, I graduated in the uh, dot-com bus. Um, From, on that perspective, like from the client side, what they want is competency number one, like technical competency. I mean, you hear it time and time again. They're like, man, these lawyers just don't understand, you know, how email works. Or like, you know, they want to print everything to paper. It's like that it drives people crazy, especially that are, especially the people that are in more of the, um, uh, you know, tech focused um, uh, businesses, you know, the SaaS companies out here in the Bay Area that we have as customers. They're like, no. And what, and the the negative side effect of that is some of these um, in-house teams get so frustrated they're like, screw it. We're going to do it ourselves. Like we're just going to figure it out ourselves because our law firms are not bringing us the technical competence that we need to get these jobs done, which is then of course, cutting out potential work from lawyers. So there is a significant advantage for the lawyers that understand in our world, at least they understand the ins and outs, not on like a super technical level. You don't need to be a computer scientist or anything, but the ins and outs of e-discovery and how it works. And, you know, the right questions to ask and how, how to operate these tools. I think um, I think that's really big. It's the other reason why we created that color certification program so that we could get these people using it, get them some base level knowledge, and then broadcast that out, right? So, like, get people right. to know, like, hey, these people are actually certified in this product. Like a Clio certification, same thing.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. I, th- I think it's a really important point. And, you know, just building on your comment, Andy, I think one of the things... I've really come to realize over the last few years is you know, in, in working with the law firms that really find a way to stand out through the use of technology, you realize that at the end of the day, it ends up being a fairly minor investment from their end in, in the grand scheme of things. It's kind of the easy part of the job to get right. Yeah. Uh, the, the technical competence at, at being a good lawyer and getting a law degree and knowing how to do the work is actually 80, 90% of the work. and Putting the window dressing on it with great technical expertise, using the right tools, using tools like great e-discovery platforms, using tools like client portals, accepting electronic payments, all those small things that clients really appreciate uh, are, are, are the things that have the impact, by the way. like They, they kind of just assume that you know how to do the legal aspect of the work, but the place you end up being really differentiated is being savvy with using electronic signatures or other, <laughs> other tools that yeah. are kind of the easy part of the job. So I, th- I think it's a really interesting and yeah. important point that you made there. Um, yeah.
0: The billboard hours is one of the reasons we see why they don't go that route. Right. So like they, if you don't have CLE component to it or there's nothing in return, like it's, it's, there's a natural reluctance cause there's
1: no incentive to. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Andy, one other question I have for, for you. you. You mentioned you graduated into the, the dot-com bust. Yeah. Uh, you weathered the 08, financial crisis. So uh, you and I, you know, I, I uh, similarly founded Clio uh, in the, at the outset of the financial crisis. So I, I feel like you know, there's so many founders I talk, talk to uh, that have only known the last 10 or 11 years and kind of know the good times, the boom times, and have never seen a, a downturn. Um, um, what, what lessons do you, have you kind of extracted from your times going through the, the downturns and the tougher times that you might share from, from either a mindset perspective or, or even a, a pragmatic perspective?
0: Oh yeah. Uh, I'll probably fall on your footsteps and write a book about this one day. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many because we, we've lived through a, a couple. Um, you know, I think on the positive side, like back to what we were talking about with entrepreneurs living in the future, you know, I think the, the constraint of a, um, a financial recession will breed all kinds of, you know, creativity, right? It's just, you know, that old adage. Um, and we saw that ourselves, you know, with logical. We're like, huh, what's going to change now? You know, what, what's, what's it going to look like in the next you know five to 10 years. So I think there's a natural, uh, a really good thing that can come out of this where there's some, some natural ideas from the constraint um, that I think you should embrace, you know, and in this day and age, like what, we're, what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago with COVID kind of pulling 10 years of technology adoption to less than a year. Um, that's huge, you know, so like if you have right. this like idea that's 10 years, Maybe too soon. Well, maybe not anymore. Yeah, that's big. And then, you know, there's some obvious stuff. Like I like to look at um, like the role of the CEO, at least. I, I try and you know, bring some alliteration so I can remember things. So I have these like uh, four C's, uh, clarity, um, uh, uh, culture, uh, customers, and cash. And in times of distress, I've kind of moved those things around a little bit. Like, okay, right. cash, cash kind of moves up to the top right? It's like, right. okay, we got to, we got to conserve cash, be prudent about this stuff. But at the same time, we need to bear hug our customers. So like let's put customers at, as number two. And then you know, number three is like vision, you know, all that shit, like down the road, clarity of vision. Um, and you know, of course culture is really important, but, uh, um, those are, you know, some basic, basic learnings I have. And You kind of adjust these things as you see fit based on where you are in the market.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. It's the, there are four things that are always important, but being really aware of what is the stack rank of these four things based on current conditions and where might you be willing to make a sacrifice in service of one of the other right. priorities. Yeah. They're all,
0: they're always pulling on each other, you know. Yeah,
1: like, yeah. There's yeah. trade offs uh, all the time. Yeah, um, and Andy when. We've talked to entrepreneurs about technology and and, and legal tech in particular. One of the themes that we we talk about is how it how how legal tech can impact access to justice. And uh, it's a topic I'm really passionate about. And I'm I'm curious to hear your perspective on uh, legal technology in general, and maybe logical in particular, how you see them fitting into the access to justice equation overall.
0: Yeah, I think it's, um, I'm I'm in the same camp with you. I mean, this is the fundamental reason why we built Logical. We wanted to democratize this crazy, expensive, annoyingly complicated thing of e-discovery. Um, and the reason for that wasn't just the technical challenge behind it, which was pretty uh, pretty freaking difficult. Um, but it was the uh, uh, just the unfairness that occurs, you know, in the marketplace, like those that have. Um, especially in this digital world we now live in, you know, can afford it. But those that, ha- that don't have it, they can't afford it. And why is that? Well, these, these middlemen out there and these tools are way too expensive to procure. They're way too expensive to use. Um, maybe they're, you know, too complicated, those kinds of things. And so that's naturally going to push people away from the market that could need those tools. So that was the fundamental reason of, of building Logicals to democratize this process of discovery, which, we looked at and said, well, if people can't get access to data, if it's true that data is the future of deciding these cases, right? Um, Right. Because everything's going to be online and people can't get access to it because it's too expensive or too complicated. Well, then that's going to create a serious uh, um, divide um, in the market. So let's fill that. Let's build something that's easy to use uh uh accessible from any from where anywhere and obviously affordable you kind of have to check that box um so i think you know legal tech tools like ours you know with on the discovery side on on yours with you know matter management these are tools again that will uh that are that are uh, fairly inexpensive to procure easy to use and historically were managed by complex systems or very expensive third parties right um, and now that you can do them yourselves, it's naturally going to open up the market to those that, that maybe need it the most, and they can do it themselves. You don't need those third-party, those expensive services
1: anymore. Right. Um, and, and reducing that structural cost from legal services, I think how we ultimately end up making them more accessible. If we think we can pass all of those costs onto the consumer, which is kind of the current model, yeah. Um legal services will remain out of reach for, for many, but I, I, feel there's, there's such a big opportunity with technology. Okay. Andy final question. I've really enjoyed our conversation here. Uh, this is a bit more lighthearted, but, uh, I've, I've noticed on Twitter, uh, you're a big fan of walking meetings and getting out into the open to break the the monotony, maybe, of of being on endless Zoom calls. Uh, our, <laughs> yeah. We just saw one one hazard of zooming on the go, which was your your iPhone overheating. Where if, if everyone's wondering why your background changed suddenly, you needed to switch from uh, your phone to your laptop yeah. uh, to continue the conversation. And our our producers noticed that there was a. Uh, a tweet you sent out recently about nearly stepping on a, a rattlesnake while you're on a Zoom call
0: <laughs> almost <laughs> happened again today, but it wasn't a rattlesnake. <laughs>
1: tell us a, tell us a bit more about your approach to uh, to Zooming and try to stay sane and and and, and maybe alive as well.
0: Yeah, um, so I, I live in Northern California, and so we're, we're fortunate with with good weather in general. Today it's absolutely terrible. Uh, that's why my phone overheated because it's a hundred degrees here and it's high humidity. <laughs> but that is not normal, you know, for where I live. So, you know, I I made the decision early on. I was like, you know, this could be a really stressful environment. I need to reduce my serotonin levels in my brain. A good way to do that is lots of drugs. Um just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh or no, walks. Yeah, or walks. Yeah, lots of exercise. Um so I uh, I committed to, I bought a battery pack and a backpack and a big bottle of water. And so I just throw my battery pack in the, in the backpack and I just go walk. Uh, last month I walked 282.5 miles this month. Wow. I'll, I'll do over 300. Wow. I've done, uh, I've done almost 10 today. Um,
1: that's so phenomenal.
0: I, you know, when you're on zoom calls nonstop, you've got nothing else to do. <laughs> so
1: and are, are you doing those implementation detail, admittedly? But are you doing those with audio only, or are you doing those with video while you walk?
0: <laughs> there,
1: there, there's. And the is good that question. how you almost step on a rattlesnake? Uh,
0: there you go. So I, I, try, I try, I like to balance it because you know there is there is Zoom fatigue, right? We're not used to like looking at ourselves constantly. You know, we don't have yeah. in-person meetings. We're just staring in each other's eyes. It's just weird. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so uh, there is Zoom fatigue. So I, I balance it on my one-on-ones. I do, I do them mostly on Tuesdays. So I, it's all audio, you know. And then throughout the week, it's kind of, you know, mishmash of audio and Zoom. But the other day, I guess this was last week, I was on Newport in this beautiful trail. I mean, flowers everywhere. It was a gorgeous days, like 72 degrees. And I'm walking, you know, got my phone out in front of me and um, there's tall grass everywhere, and I'm walking, oh! and sh- there was a uh, baby rattlesnake right in front of my path, just going across. Wow. Yeah, and I stopped, and it got uh, a little aggressive. It kind of pulled back, you know, at me. Yeah, <laughs> giving like,
1: you a bit of a warning.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I backed out, and then this morning, I was walking around my neighborhood in a covered area, and almost stepped on a snake again, uh, but it was like a, you know, a king snake. It wasn't a poisonous snake, so there are some hazards of you know, work from wherever and zooming and walking.
1: (laughs) All right, well, uh, thanks for sharing that. Really enjoyed our conversation, Andy. Uh, Stay safe out there, and I mean that in all ways possible. (laughs) And uh, uh, thanks again for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Jack. Much appreciated. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com.